For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Welcome to the Rock Podcast. Now here in chapter 2, Paul's thoughts turn from his own situation to what's going on at the church in Philippi. It seems that there was some petty squabbling going on which was causing division and threatening the church's effectiveness and well-being. The remedy called for is an other-centered approach to life through unity and humility. Now, let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Get Over Thyself. Alrighty. Let's get started, dive back into the Word of God. Philippians chapter two, hey, we've made it that far. If you're new, we are going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the New Testament on Sundays. And uh, we have finished up all of chapter one. We're headed into a very famous and very profound chapter, chapter two of Philippians. So let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, just these life-changing truths this morning in Philippians chapter 2, just, just precious passage that can just impact our lives for the good in so many ways. Father, just it, it's one of the hardest things, the greatest challenge to do, and yet the most important uh, quality to have is listed here that will either make or break us so, Father, give us ears and open hearts and let your, work, let your work begin by our openness to receive the word of God and to put it into practice. In Christ's name, amen. Well, what on earth can the devil do with this guy, the Apostle Paul? How is it going to stop him and the work that he's doing for the Lord? What a menace Paul was uh, to the evil one. I'll tell you what, I mean, throw him in prison and he wins the guards to Christ, right? Lock him up and he starts to write letters, which turn out to be part of the New Testament. You know, others are inspired uh, by his suffering and emboldened to preach the gospel. Maybe, you know, maybe we should let him out because he's doing so much work when, when he's in. But if you let him out, the guy's going to evangelize the entire continent. You know, well, then what if we have him executed? Well, <laughs> you're going to do the guy a favor because you're going to win him a martyr's crown. Because this, And it's something he's looking forward to. He just told us in chapter 1. Actually, I'm torn between two outcomes. One outcome would be to re- be released from prison and join you. That would be nice. But the other outcome is to be released from this body and join Christ face to face. And he said, that would be better by far. And then he says, to be honest with you, I really don't know which outcome I'm hoping for. (laughs) And so they're just, I mean, he just is a predicament for the evil one. You know, wouldn't it be nice to be that much trouble uh, for Satan ourselves, you know? And so he summed up this win-win attitude of his Uh, with a confident outlook and an irrepressible joy and an undeterred optimism. In fact, that was the title of last week's message. I mean, chapter one, and all of that from inside a prison cell. 
Just, you just cannot keep that joy down. Why? Because he's like, I'm saved. What does it matter? God will never leave me. He'll, he'll never forsake me. I, I, I've read the last chapter. We win. And uh, even the hard times, he closes out the chapter one by saying, even all the hurtful, painful things that I've endured as a Christian have really been turned around by the redeeming hand of God for good. Good for God. Good for the church. Good for me. So it's just a win-win. And so even though he's chained, man, he has uh, got a lot of joy. And we've been told in the Bible to imitate him. Whatever things we've seen and heard or learned from him, to put it into practice. And the God of peace would fill our hearts with joy the same way that he's filled his joy. Now, uh, closing out last week to give us some uh, context, you will recall he was excited about the future, but his eyes turned from his situation to uh, their situation. He has heard from Epaphroditus told him when he visited, uh, the church is kind of crumbling under the pressure of the persecution. The persecution is getting to them and they're squabbling, uh, they're bickering, they've got some petty offenses, there's some divisions, there are people not talking to each other. The church is, is divided, Paul. And so he's going to turn from, here's what's going on uh, with me, to an exhortation. And how did he start it? He said, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And now he's been telling us what that means, that every Christian, no matter what happens in our lives to people we care about or to us as our life unfolds, right? Whatever happens, we are called to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so what that has been looking like, really, is to guard and maintain the unity of the church so that the church of God, which is bigger than all of our problems and, and the center of what's important in life is what God is doing in the world, uh, that that would be guarded and, and um, kept from falling apart uh, because we have singleness of heart and humility and love for one another. And so there are two ingredients that will make or break you as a Christian. Humility, right? And unity. Unity in a family, in a marriage, a oneness, right? Because a house divided cannot stand. And humbleness of heart, these are things. So Paul is trying to get them to understand, look, if there's something bigger than you guys' problems going on. And I want you to lay that aside for the, the hugeness, awesome work of God in your midst. So he continues now. Now, what I want to do is read verses 1 through 11, though we only get to verse 4. Uh, but it, the context is important, all right? So you'll see why as we take a look at this. Now, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and you do, and if any comfort from his love, and there is, and if any fellowship with the Spirit, and wow, yeah, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God himself, didn't consider equality with God something to use for his own advantage, something to be grasped, that's what that means, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, a word is slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man because he was more than a man. He was found, he looked like us, but he was the God-man. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. It goes on. Therefore God the Father exalted God the Son to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and by the way, under the earth too. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know about you, I could read that every day of my life. Every day, and I need to. We need to, man, if you get arrogant, you know, as they say, the proverbial uh, deserted island, you know, if you ever land on one, and you only get to choose one passage, man. Philippians chapter two will do it for you. Man, what a privilege. One of the most, uh, thank you for that. One of the most well-known, uh, best-loved, and most profound, and most convicting. My word, you just say, did you hear what he just said? Uh, let's talk about Jesus' example. Though he was God, everybody could be serving him. He came not to be served, but to serve. So what are you thinking? You know, wow. So we're going to take a look at that. And uh, the, the paragraph that I just read, the couple paragraphs, divides into two things there. This week we'll look at the call to humility, to walk in humbleness of heart like our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's verses one through four. Uh, the, the, the second half next week is the example of the Son of God and to imitate uh, him. And so today's focus one through four, I'll just show you, this is our text for this morning. It divides quite nicely, you know, it's verses one and two are, are going to talk, is, he's going to motivate his listeners because it's such a difficult task and it's so crucial what he's going to ask, right? It's so important, but so hard to do that he's going to have to inspire you to want to do it. Right, so that's the that's in the first uh, couple verses, and he also in the first couple verses is going to lay out the objectives. This is what God wants His church to look like. That's important. And then in three and four, we're going to see what He wants the church to be, how He wants every church. You know, there's a plethora, as they say, of Christian books: how to do your church, how to how to make a church grow, and all of that. The Bible tells us everything we need to know about what the church should look like and how the church should be run and the character quality of each church. And so we're going to take a look at, in verses 3 and 4, he exposes the problem of self-centeredness because if, if too many people and even one person is having a me moment, it causes a lot of problems. And also he's going to give the re remedy the cure for, hum for pride and all the trouble that brings. 
is humility. So we're going to talk about these things. So why don't we isolate verses 1 and 2, because we'll start there at the beginning and, and talk about first the impassioned plea or the motivation, the inspiration for wanting to have you, wanting to have you um, comply with something that's way difficult. Think about what he's asking you to do. Listen to this. I want you to consider others better than yourself. Well, which others do you mean? Right? That's the first thing. And, and how often would you like me to do that? You know, uh, uh, not to make everything about us, uh, to think of ourselves as everyone else's servant, to, uh, to live others-centered 24-7. Yeah. Now, I, it would be one thing if he's saying, hey, for the weekend, it's your wife's birthday. Could you make it all about her for a couple days? You know, he's not saying that. He's saying, this is the way I want you to live, that everybody else in the room is better and more important, more significant than you are 24-7, Monday through Friday. No, Monday through Friday. (laughs) And then you get weekends off. (laughs) And that's the problem. (laughs) Yeah, there's no cheat days. Okay, I'm having a cheat day, all right? Yeah, I know, that's not gonna work. And so, yes, I read that uh, when I read this, I just go like that's ever going to happen without a miracle, a full-on God miracle to make me constantly one twenty-four-seven uh, about the other person. Yes, it's you. You're the important person to highly regard and esteem them above ourselves. That's just impossible. And when the disciples heard Jesus preaching, they would just roll their eyes and go, "Well, then who?" Eh. This is impossible. Who could be saved? Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, I know, with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And so this, instead of disheartening you, it should encourage you to what? Press in closer. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Spend more time on your knees. I mean, live as a full-on, sold-out Christian because there's no other way to do this. And by the way, these in the Greek, they're in the emphatic. That means they're commands. They're not suggestions. They're not options. Hey, if you feel like it, if you're having a good week, if you've read your Bible, you know it'd be nice to be other-centered. He's not saying that. He's saying, I don't care if it's raining or not raining, good weather, bad weather. When you're up and when you're down, this is the way to live. And it's a command just like the ten. It's a command of the Lord. When Jesus says, if anyone says he loves me, He will keep my commands. This is a command. Anything that says you should do this or don't do this in the New Testament is a full-on, straight-out command of the Most High God. We need to just start to let that marinate in us a little bit. And so here are the commands, and thankfully we have the Holy Spirit to help us. He who commands enables. Remember that. He would never ask you to do something that you couldn't do. That would just create frustration in you. He's asking you to do something he knows you can do if you just let him help you get out of the way. And that's really the gist of the whole passage. So what do you have in front of you? You have kind of a a short list of all the benefits of salvation. Put posed to you as a rhetorical question for the purpose of saying, If you've benefited in all these ways in your Christian salvation, you have a moral obligation to comply with what I'm about to ask you. That's the point of this first verse of 
such a torrent of love and eloquence, an impassioned plea. I beg you, listen, he says. He goes on to say, listen, are you saved? Well, I know you are, but are you saved? Is your spirit joined with his spirit? Are you being transformed from glory to glory? Are you going to heaven? Do you have eternal life? Are all your sins been forgiven? Have you derived any encouragement out of this? First word, encouragement, falls short in English. In Greek, it kind of has the idea of, have, is there a new incentive in your life? Is there something new driving you? Is there, isn't there a new passion from getting saved? A passion that says, hey, I want to do right. I want to help people. I want to love people. Has that happened or has it not? To tell others about the gospel, uh, to be merciful and and all of that. And then he says, and how about that love of God? Have you tasted? Have you had that moment where your soul says, I am the object of God's intense love? Has your soul awoken to that reality, that life-changing thing that Paul says, my prayer for you is that you'd understand the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of God's love, which surpasses knowledge. He's saying, I pray that you'll get it, but it's above understanding. But let us do our best and the Holy Spirit will will help us to kind of catch it. We'll only fully know it when we're out of these limited bodies. If you've got the love of God, has it slapped you around, you know, slapped you to uh, reality? Then if you are saved, you are joined to Christ, you have the comfort and encouragement and tenderness of the Holy Spirit living on board. Why can't you get along with each other? That's what he's going to say. He's going to say, if this is true and you say it is, and I know it is, then this should result. Not only because you have an obligation to your Lord, 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 why do you call me Lord and don't do what I ask you to do? You have A, an obligation to your Lord. B, is there love, tender mercies, comfort, compassion? Is that in you? Well, it better be or you're not saved because in the heart of the Savior, beat all of that. And if he says, I'm in you by the Spirit of Christ, if you've been joined to love, if your soul's been knitted and fused to, to love incarnate and compassion, the verb in the Greek, splanknizomai, means to tear the gut. And it's only used to Jesus whenever he says he had compassion on him and touched him. It means he, it ripped his heart. And he's saying, so if that's in you, as you claim it is, then you ought to put that into practice. If you are a Christian, be a Christian. And that means in the pews when you don't get invited to the party and when someone looks past you and says something rude or, or someone you think someone looked at you funny or somebody likes a certain kind of music that you don't like or all of that stuff. Is it the love of God stronger than those petty little differences? He's asking the question, True or false, have you experienced his love? And then he goes on and he says, how about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? That word means sharing. Has God shared his essence with you on the inside? That's what happens. When you get saved, you open your heart. You don't just start doing good deeds. Oh, I can't do this. Or I can't do that. That's not a Christian. That could be a Buddhist. That could be a Buddhist. 
But a Christian opens his heart up and in comes the Holy Spirit who listens. Second Peter chapter one, who shares with us the divine nature so that we can live for him and escape the corruption that's in the world. So what he's saying is he's given you the divine nature, not so that you can call things into being and abuse it like televangelists teach you. He's given, shared the life of God with you so that you can be other-centered like Christ, so that you can be the slave in the room who washes dirty feet, so that you can do the job nobody else wants to do, so that you can sit there and say, I'm going to look up to everybody in the room. They are more significant than I, because you can never do it without the shared life of the Holy Spirit. And so what is he saying? He's saying, have you experienced that? Well, yeah, I know you have. So he's really saying, since you have, and you claim to have, and I believe you have, then here are the objectives. Then you'll want to look like this. And here they are. I'll just pull them out of verse 2 for, for us to look at. There's four of them. Like-minded, same love, one in spirit, one in purpose. Listen, everybody knows the truth of this in the world. Sports teams. You know, coaches teach. It's not about two guys who are uh, glory hogs. It's about everybody with the attitude, I'm going to make someone else look good. I'm going to set someone else up. I'm going to be an assister, right? And, and so that's how the team wins, right? And, and families and marriages, we know that we have to come together. We can't, the, the two shall become one. It's when the two remain two that, uh, you know, people start calling lawyers, you know, and so that's, that's not a good thing at all. And so these, these four things right here are listed. And now the request really is that everybody get on the same page because of being connected to Christ, because we essentially are on the same page. So it's a reasonable request for, to, to make us together as one. We have a savior in common. Think of the things we have in common. Our rescue, everybody in this room was headed for hell, every last one of us, deservingly so. We were dead in our sins. We were disobedient. We were by nature Children of wrath, just like the rest, we have this in common. And one day, because of his kindness and his mercy, and this is what we all have in common in this room, that Christ, in spite of us, softened our hearts, convicted us of our sin, and we cried out for the Lord. We could have one by one, each person in here, and we all recognize this. We have the same story. I was blind, but now I see. We have the same destiny. We're going to heaven. We're going to share eternity together forever. And the same way that we all got saved was what? The cross of God the Son, bleeding, his blood applied to our souls. We share the blood of Jesus. That's what separates us from the rest of the world that stands condemned. Our sins are paid for by the blood of Christ and everyone in this room who's going to heaven is not saved because you were better than anybody else, but that you're a recipient of the blood of God shed on your behalf. Shouldn't that unite us and make us bigger and then all the things that divide us. And so that's what he's saying. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, 
So we set our minds on the same thing. We go about it in the same love. We accomplish it by the same spirit and we're all working toward the same goal. What's the goal? That's bigger than all of our differences because this is a diverse group. I mean, I have the vantage point of looking at you. I know your stories. Uh, (laughs) Let me tell you, there is massive diversity going on in this room. Massive. In ways you can't, layers and layers of differences. And yet, he says, that's the glory of the church. The church are called ecclesia, the called out ones. So he calls out this massive diversity of humanity. And then he says, this is what? You're knitted together by the same spirit for what? Reverencing Jesus as Lord. Loving God with all of our hearts, obeying his commands, growing in the faith, defending and preaching the gospel, strengthening the church and reaching the lost. That, my friend, is way bigger than whatever gripe you have about anything. That is the gospel. And he says, you can come together. It doesn't matter. You can do these things that I just mentioned. Reverence Jesus as Lord, love God with all your hearts, obey his commands, defend and preach the gospel, strengthen the church and reach the lost. You can do that whether you live in Fountain Grove or out of the back seat of your pickup truck. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or green. You can do these things. It doesn't matter your taste of music or how you think the church can be run. You can lay all of that aside and say there's something bigger going on here than my personal opinions, my offenses, my struggles, and who I don't like, and who I do like, and all of that. It's about the glory of God and his work. The world is going to hell. All around us, our beautiful nation falling apart before our very eyes, our hearts. We don't even recognize our own country anymore. What happened? The Bible says that's exactly what was going to happen before in a twinkling of an eye, in a trumpet call, that we who are alive and remain shall be caught up away, unawares, and then the end shall come. And we're busy bickering about who invited us, who didn't. Well, I'm never going to talk to them again. And if they think that I'm going to serve in, you know, children's ministry anymore, well, let that, you know, sorry. (laughs) Right? And the whole world, the whole world just going off the cliff while Satan says, oh, look at her. She doesn't like you. She never has. She thinks she's better than you. All right? And pushing all your buttons so that you either drop out or you come and you cause a problem or you go on Facebook. God help us all. (laughs) Before you post anything, let a friend who's not involved read it and then tell you to delete it, all right? Because you'll be so happy, you know? Even politicians can't figure that out. Do not tweet that, you know? Afterwards, they have to retweet or untweet or detweet. (laughs) Just don't tweet, maybe that's the answer. Okay, so, so you got the motivation, right? You got the motivation. Do this, he's saying, because you're saved. And because you're connected to Jesus, I want you to do these things. That's how the church works. Everybody together, we're all on this. We've laid it all aside for the one important thing. And then he says, and, and by the way, it would, it would top off my joy. That's what the word means, to complete my joy. He's saying, they, they, Paul is their founding pastor. 
they love him. And he said, by the way, first of all, do it because you're saved. Do it out of the love of God. But by the way, if you want to top off my joy, all I need to hear in this prison is that you're loving each other. You've got each other's backs. You've laid down all your differences. The, the two little part factions that weren't talking to each other, they're talking to each other. They had a big potluck. Everybody's happy. If I heard that, Oh, man, it's like the Holy Spirit just topping me off because I already got joy. I'm connected to Jesus. But, you know, the little bit that's there, if you just want to overflow me, then if you guys get your act together, man, what a blessing that would be for me as well. He's just saying, listen, something big and beautiful is happening. Bury the hatchet and not over each other's heads. (laughs) Yeah, I'll bury the hatchet, all right. Settle your differences. There's something bigger. It's called the cross of Christ and the salvation of the world. (laughs) Okay, moving on now to three and four, our last part. All right, so he exposes the problem to unity by saying selfishness and uh, pride and being absorbed with self is always the problem. And then he gives us a remedy for that. Uh, Let's read it again. You can't read this too many times. Do nothing, nothing's a big word. (laughs) Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourself. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Got it. Now, as the saying goes, you know, there's some problems to this beautiful unity, and we've met the enemy, and as the saying goes, Uh, The enemy is us, right? Think about it. Trace back any problem. Trace it back. Problem in the church, problem at your company, problem with your coworkers, problem with your marriage. Problem in civilized, out there civilization. Trace it back to what? The exaltation of self. It's at the root of all evil. Is when self says, I'm so important, I don't care what God thinks, I don't care what society thinks, I don't care what my mom or dad thinks, and quite frankly, I don't care what you think. I'm going to do this anyway. The exaltation of self, where self is on the throne and everybody better watch out. Uh, So he's gonna talk about three things he exposes. Uh, Selfish ambition, vain conceit, and a preoccupation with our own lives. He says these things are a three-pronged problem and an evil to watch out for. So let's talk about selfish ambition. Now, he says do nothing out of it. Uh, So whatever it is, it's uh, completely barred from our lives, selfish ambition, and strictly forbidden. Now, it's this attitude. What's in it for me? Being motivated by everything coming back to you. How will this affect my reputation? How will people see me? Um, how I'm affected, everything you do and say and think is about um, positioning yourself for the best amount of comfort, convenience. Uh, how is this going to affect my bank account, uh, my time, and all of that? Am I getting what I want? In fact, the word there for selfish ambition really means a striving 
for preeminence, which upsets unity in the process. So get out of my way. I'm here, me, myself, and I, and everybody has to kind of bow down. Uh, Diotrephes, 3 John chapter 1 and verse 9. He was an elder at one of the churches John was sort of pastoring. And John writes about him, hey, I've been wanting to get a hold of you guys, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among you. That's the idea. I don't get what John thinks. I'm, a, I'm an elder here. How long has John been here? You know, that whole kind of thing, John doesn't understand. It's all about him. And he caused a lot of problems there. And so... You, you always will cause problems when it's all about you, and that's really what selfish ambition is. It's all about you first. Now, Abraham and Lot. Abraham, Lot is his nephew. Uh, they're grazing. God has blessed them, and they're on the open plains, and uh, they've run out of land to be so close together. So Abraham comes up with a great, great idea. He says, uh, Lot, take your stuff and your livestock and go in any direction. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. So Lot, a me first kind of guy, says, well, I look left and, you know, it looks like it's a place of need, right? But when I look right, it's like the Garden of Eden. Oh, yes, this is before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. It was as lush as it says in the Bible, Garden of Eden-like qualities. And Lot goes, that's for me. I'll take that. Me first. I want the best. You will always end up on the short end of the stick, as Lot did. He chose Sodom and Gomorrah. That was a bad thing. And then Abraham, he, he just said, whatever, brother, you can have the, your way there. What does God say to Abraham? Look north, south, east, west. I'm giving it all to you. That's how God is. When we defer to others, when we refresh others, when, when we give way, when we serve, he comes from behind and he says, you put me first, all these things will be added to you. He who refreshes others, he himself will be refreshed. Give and it'll be given to you. Those are three scriptures back to back that says the outflow, be a person of outflow and then you're making room for God to bring the blessing in. That's how life works. It's, uh, it's not the way our natural inclination is, unfortunately, and that's why we don't leave room for God to do anything because we're full of ourselves. We're not giving. He wants us to be in giving mode. Selfish ambition. Now, you know, I've told this joke before, but I'm gonna try it again. <laughs> It's hard to be other-centered, but here we go. Two guys meet, and they go to Outback after a hard-fought uh, soccer match. They're hungry, so they ordered the biggest cut of meat they could find. It was Porterhouse, by the way. Now, the waiter returns. He's got one platter, and he's got both the steaks on it for some reason. So one was visibly much smaller than the other one. And so he sets it down, and one guy proceeds to serve his buddy. So he grabs the smaller steak, puts it on a plate, and shoves it in front of his friend. And his friend goes, seriously? <laughs> wow. And the guy says, what's your problem? And he goes, you picked the smaller one, and you served it to me. Man. And he goes, well, what would have you done? 
And he goes, well, I would hope that I would have chosen the larger one and given it to you. And he goes, well, see, I have it. So praise <laughs> the Lord. Let's eat. Let's eat. Which <laughs> See, I needed to tell it again because that one went better this time. All right, listen. You've heard of the Holy Trinity. Let me introduce you to the unholy Trinity. Me, myself, and I. Do not go there. Do not worship at that altar. Oh, you will be sorry. Life is not intended to be about you. It's about God. And when you make it about yourself, you've inverted the universe. Something terrible is going to happen. And, and the, you know, it's wanting the bigger portion. It's wanting the best seat. It's wanting the easier task. It's wanting the lighter load. It's wanting the most convenient time for me. It's wanting all the credit. It's wanting everything to go your way. It's wanting it to be all about you all the time and in every way. And may the good Lord help anyone who doesn't cooperate with your ambition to make yourself the center of all things. And all God's people said, a mandatory amen. Oh, I'll tell you what, nothing slaps you around like the Bible in such a good way. I call it chemotherapy. I mean, it goes in and it makes you queasy, you know, but it's killing all the bad cells, you know. You're going to come out of this alive if you let the word do its work. Amen? Amen. Let's move on to vain conceit. Doesn't that sound fun? (laughs) Here's what I wrote down here. I wrote down what took down the devil will take you down too. The thing that transformed Lucifer into Satan can't be much good for us either, right? This is how he felt. Strictly divine, defined, I should say, what is vain conceit? Vain conceit, overinflated estimation of one's own importance. It's exactly the opposite of a command in Romans chapter 12 and verse three that says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment. What does sober judgment mean? Sober judgment means to consider the greatness of God and the puniness of ourselves, the holiness of God and the depravity, the wickedness in our own hearts and the vulnerability and the proneness and the potential to do. You may not have committed the worst sin, but you're fully capable. The seed of those terrible things are in all of us through our fallen nature. So all he's saying is, is that we should have a right understanding of who we are but, and who God is. That's healthy and normal. You've heard of narcissists, right? A narcissist was named after... Narcissism is the deal where it's all about you and you're in love with yourself, right? And so narcissism comes from Narcissus, who is a mythical creature who uh, was so in love with himself. Here's a painting of the 1500s, right? So the dude in the mythology says that the dude was walking by a, a clear pond where he saw his reflection. There's lots of variations on the story, but in all of them, he falls in love with himself Himself. And he can't break the gaze because he's so beautiful, admiring his perfectly formed lips. And he bends over to give himself a kiss. 
and he can't figure out to pull his mouth out of the water and he drowns himself <laughs> in himself. Wow. Just let that rest upon us all. You say, that's ugly. That's ugly. Don't be in that way, the Bible says. And so, no one models that better than Lucifer. Listen to how he fell. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you down to the earth. I made a spectacle of you, exposing you for who you truly are, Ezekiel 28. Isaiah finishes the story. Listen to this. Speaking of the devil, he says, how you have fallen. You see, when you exalt, there's only one way God deals with you is to bring you down. He'll say that later. How you have fallen and said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll set my throne above God's. Uh, I will rule over the stars in the heavenly host. I'll climb the highest heavens and I will make myself like the most high God. That is what exaltation of self does in all of us, even when we do, we're saying that we are the Lord of our lives and I will do in this moment as I please because I am Lord. Oh man, we are never more like the devil when we are full of ourselves and fall in love with ourselves and have an overinflated uh, opinion of ourselves and that should keep us all from this kind of sin. He's the poster child for selfish ambition and vain conceit. What did Jesus say? For, listen to this. For those who exalt themselves, they'll be humbled, and those who will, uh, are, will humble themselves will be exalted. A spiritual, a spiritual law that God says is knitted into the fabric of this universe. When a human being will get full of themselves, puffed up, that word means puffed emptiness. When you do that and exalt self, God says it's like a beacon to God's heart that is calling out for God to humble you in mercy, to put you in a better place for yourself. And he will bring you down every single time. And listen to this. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud. Uh, uh, anybody here want God to oppose you? That, that sounds terrible. Yeah, well, how are you doing today? Well, God's opposing me. He's thinking of ways, how can I oppose this guy? Because why? Because you've exalted yourself upon the throne that he must reign upon. He says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he'll lift you up. I much prefer that direction, amen? But it means that we first um, humble ourselves. And so, yeah, he goes on to say here, uh, don't be uh, only preoccupied with your own needs as well. And we're going to talk about that. And so just remember, nothing good will come of being too much of you. John the Baptist less it. You know, they tried to say, hey, you know what? Everybody's going to Jesus, leaving you in the dust. Where are all your friends, buddy? And he says, that's the way it should be because he must increase, I must decrease. That Jesus tried to tell us, lose your life. Lose your life for me, then you'll find you. Don't find yourself, hey, I found myself, you know, and leave your wife and kids and find yourself. He says, dude, you just lost everything. 
Lose yourself for my sake. Then you'll find yourself. This is just, we have it backwards. And uh, it takes the Holy Spirit to help us get it right side up. And so the Bible says there's a better way. And here comes the remedy. Here are two things. Adjust your attitude and amend your behavior. This is the remedy for it's all about me syndrome. All right? So, so first of all, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Uh, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Okay. Of course, it's always adjust attitude, then adjust behavior. That's the way it goes. Change your mind about something, and it'll affect the way you behave about that person. So what he's going after here is for us to have humility. What does humility mean? What is it? What is it not? It means lowliness of mind, and again, we've already defined it. It's a proper understanding of the glory of God, his greatness, his amazingness, grace and mercy, contrasted with our own weakness and sinfulness. It's just proper. It, it, listen to me what it's not. It, humility is not self-loathing. It's grace-loving. It, it's just not about thinking about yourself so much. It's thinking about others and the Lord. That's what humility is. It's healthy. It's attractive. It's not a, oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm a failure. That's not humility. That's some other problem. Uh, <laughs> humility is attractive. Jesus said, come to me. You'll, you'll like the experience because I'm gentle and humble in heart. In other words, you'll be set at ease by coming to me because I'm not all about myself. I'm not in there critiquing you and judging you. It's safe to come to me. Come to me because I, I'm, I'm humble. It's safe. It's a safe zone for you. So it's really a winsome, attractive quality. Uh, you ask questions about the other person. You don't monopolize the whole conversation. Stop and think about a recent conversation and who did all the talking. Do you pause and then keep deflecting it? And how about you? And, and, and how did you celebrate the day? Oh, tell me more about that. Do you keep hitting the ball back as fast as you can because you're other-centered? Or are you keep loading the next story to make it all back about you again? That's not humility. That's that selfish ambition thing. Just to be about other people. Just pause in the car. The next time you're stuck with somebody, <laughs> I didn't mean that bad. You're stuck with somebody. You're, you're, you're enjoying each other's company. Just pay, <laughs> pay attention to the meter of your conversation. My word, I can't believe how many Christians Talk too much. Now, it's my job to talk too much. <laughs> you will never be much good to anybody if all you do is talk about yourself. Oh, my word. Pause. Ask a question about the other person, please. I learned this the hard way. I learned from my wife. My wife is really good at that. She just, she's more introverted and it comes naturally. She likes to get the other person talking. If you know Barb, she'll always ask you questions. She'll bat it away from her. And that's what, you know, I had the, pro the other problem, right? And then one time she had to take me aside early in the marriage and say, we had two introverted people come over for dinner and that made me nervous. Because when you're quiet in my house, it means you're mad, right? <laughs> 
that's how I grew up. Nobody's talking, someone's gonna get smacked. You know, yeah. So it said, I like to talk, I like to talk, okay, yeah. And so they, they left and Barb took me aside early days, like 25 years ago, and said, you've got to learn how to be okay with the silence a little bit, but to keep asking them questions. And so uh, if you've ever been around me, I like to ask questions, I do. I mean, I, I fall short, okay, I know that, you know, sometimes I'll do more of my share of talking, but, you know, like I said, that's not my fault. <laughs> okay, it is my fault, I'm working on it. <laughs> All right, so, yeah. It's, it's not that false thing, false humility. Oh, that you can't take a compliment, please. It's okay to say thank you and praise the Lord because you know that there'd be no use of a compliment if God didn't bless you, right? But that fake thing, he's not asking you to be fake. You know, this fake thing, oh, my wife can't really cook or they do this thing in Japan. It's called false humility. In their culture, they say, uh, they apologize when you go over the house, and I lived there four years, I saw a lot of this. I'm sorry that my wife is such a poor cook. And then I asked a Japanese friend, why are they all saying that? Do all Japanese women have trouble in the kitchen? And, and he goes, no, that's a Japanese thing we do. It's humility to say, hey, you're over, you're important, and my wife can't cook to the level that should be worthy of somebody like you. And so we all say, we apologize for my wife's bad cooking. And my wife looked at me and said, don't you even think about it. <laughs> None of this fake stuff, because false humility is really unveiled arrogance. Oh, it's just... Lose, lose with the sinful nature. It'll always find a way. Now, first your attitude. Think of others better than yourself. Now, what if they're not better than you, right? At, right? <laughs> oh, don't even laugh at me because some of you are thinking that. <laughs> what if I'm a better singer? What if I'm be I play tennis better? What if, what if? The word doesn't really mean better skilled there. It means uh, well, I have it written down here. In Greek, it means to surpass in quality or value. So here's what God's saying. I've got a little mental strategy for you. Let's play a little game. I want you to, whoever's standing there, I want you to say to yourself and believe it that this person is more important and more significant than I. So, for example, that'll change the way you listen It'll change your body language. It'll change everything. If you're thinking that person is, if you're a sports fan, let's pick Steph Curry. He was the MPV. Did I get that right most? No, MVP. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I've got dyslexia, okay? No. <laughs> he's, a, he's a cool guy. I guarantee you. He walked in here, and he's trying to chat with you. I'm, I guarantee you, you're on him, you're, I, you're, you're, you're engaged. You're like, yes, yes, because you value him and he's significant. He's rich and famous and he's a Christian and he's, he was MVP and all of that. Yeah, he was. I guarantee your attitude and everything about that conversation, you're on, right? He says, exactly. 
I want you, the Holy Spirit, a command. I want you to think, and, and it's not false either because whoever's standing in front of you was made in the likeness and image of God Almighty. They are the object of his great love, whoever they are. And he shed his blood for that person. And to God, that's a value that is higher than the value you've esteemed them usually. And so all he's asking is for the entire church to be looking up. Because if everybody in here did this Everybody else is more significant than I. You have a church filled with everybody looking up and no one, not even one, looking down. Oh, that's a, that's a welcoming church. That's a growing church. That's a productive and effective church. That's what he's asking. Uh, for me, Billy Graham. Billy Graham, just, just I, I value him. I think he's more important than myself. I want you, Ross, to think everybody's standing in front of you. Just think of him as Billy Graham. See, that doesn't make you a doormat. That doesn't mean that you listen to everything they do and you live for their whims and desires. I mean, we keep common sense, right? But in our attitude about them, how we respect the conversation, even if it goes south, if it's Billy Graham and it's going south, I can still deal with the situation, but I'm going to do it differently because of who he is. And that's what he's asking. Treat everybody like that. And I had somebody in my office and he was speaking rudely to his wife. I said, dude, you would never talk to my wife, my wife, who you don't even know. If you met her in the lobby, you would never use that tone of voice. But you're talking to your wife you're not treating her like better, more significant than yourself, but down. Sometimes we just treat other people so much better than the people that really matter in our lives. So he says, think of them, esteem them higher, and you'll find your behavior uh, changing. So he says, it's, listen to me, it's not wrong to, to take care of your own needs and interests doesn't have a problem with that. In fact, he tells us we ought to be responsible citizens and all of that and care for our families and all of that, right? But he does say it doesn't end there. You have a, listen to me, a moral responsibility and a commandment of God to be about your brother's business in the sense of, listen, in your sphere of influence, listen, according to your means and when the, the spirit prompts you in a situation, you can't just run around and meet everybody's needs. It's just not going to work. But there are moments in your day, and you know it, and I know it, right when God says, hey, maybe you could do something. Maybe you're part of the answer here. That's the moment when he says, it's not just about you. It's about the person I put in front of you that happened to be in front of the grocery store or happens to be at the coffee uh, bar at work or wherever that need is, he'll light you up if you're listening and saying, God, I, I want to be like you doing the thing that nobody else wants to do or taking care of them. Just don't stop thinking about yourself. Oh, it was a murderer in the first one at that when the Lord said, what's wrong with you? Where's your brother? Something's gone bad. I tried to warn you, Cain. Just do the right thing and everything would go well. Well, where's your brother? What am I, my brother's keeper? This verse says, yeah, 
you got a responsibility. you got a responsibility. I'm telling you what, if you're depressed, if you're ever struggling with anxiety, I'm not talking about chronic. chronic. I'm talking about when you all get down. Listen, I'm telling you what, get out of yourself, get out of your mind and do something for somebody else. Write, take an, go on an email writing campaign to encourage people. Hey, mom and dad, I just want to tell you how much you mean to me. You know, sometimes I took you for granted, da, 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 da. You, you'll get out of you, you will bless them. I'm not just talking about parents. Start looking around at people. There's a big world, a big need. Get out of yourself and you will find the Holy Spirit ministered health to your mind and and joy to your soul because life is about not receiving. Jesus said, I'm the son of God. I didn't come to receive, to be served. I came to give my life as a ransom away and you'll be blessed if you follow my example. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love in these challenging words. God, help us all. Help me. Help us as a church. Lord, we're so blessed. We, we kind of have a reputation, Lord, to just being a very loving church. I, I'm so happy about that, Lord. We just have been blessed by your spirit. There are a lot of Bible-believing, zealous Christians who make up this church family, and they just, they do life on their knees, and and they want to to love one another, and it's happening. I just pray that you would guard that and keep that, Lord, as a precious uh, gift that we would guard and that we would comply with these words because we're all vulnerable, Lord. Help us by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.